I'm thrilled that we have these medications that are incredibly helpful for a large percentage of people where it's not as if those people didn't try before. It's not as if they didn't have willpower. It's not as if they haven't been on a, you know, a dozen different diets over the years. It's that they're swimming against the current of their body's hunger hormones. And if we have medications that can take away the current, all of a sudden their desire to swim it overcomes that challenge that they had been facing beforehand. So it makes my job far, far, far easier. Hello there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I am your loyal host, Matthew. In this space, we like to concern ourselves twice a week with health and well-being. Yes, generally on a Monday and a Thursday. If you are new, welcome. Thank you for dropping by. There are circa 350 episodes in the Happy Habit Archive. So, so many different discussions, all concerned with health, well-being, there's some science in there too, and motivation and various other episodes to help you become a better version of yourself, which is what this podcast is all about. If you're already familiar with the podcast, thank you for coming back. If you've not already done so, please like, subscribe, share, and do leave the podcast a positive review, as many of you have already done to date. Giving the podcast a, a thumbs up is like giving me a compliment, which is great. It's a voice of confidence in what I'm doing here. And trust me, there's an awful lot of work goes into putting these episodes together. And I hope you're enjoying some of the interviews that I've been bringing your way in recent episodes. I have been scouring the world uh, for people of interest, people that will bring extra value and their insights and knowledge and expertise to this podcast. And talking of people of interest, I am joined today by Dr. Yoni Friedhoff. He is an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Ottawa in Canada. In 2004, he became the Founder and Medical Director of the Bariatric Medical Institute, which provides non-surgical weight management. He is one of Canada's most outspoken obesity experts, as you will hear in the upcoming interview. What follows is an insightful conversation about obesity, one which, if I hold my hand up, certainly gave me a greater appreciation of its complexities. My stance on obesity hitherto had erred on the side of the need for greater education and application of personal responsibility. But Dr. Friedhoff gives me plenty of evidence to mull over during the course of this interview. We hear about the current state of the obesity epidemic, whether there is a role that education can indeed play in changing behaviour at the population level when it comes to our food intake and obesity. We hear the doctor's thoughts on the failure of governments when it comes to the obesity crisis. And we also learn that obesity should not be a blame game and that genetics play a large role. And in some cases, obesity drugs are essential. And we hear about the role exercise can play in people's lives. Well, Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're an obesity specialist. And with that in mind, is it accurate to say that obesity is at crisis levels in the Western world? Or have we not even reached that point yet because things could get an awful lot worse? Well, so things can always get worse with virtually everything. Although I would imagine that at some point there will be sort of a leveling off where 
all of those people whose genetic success, uh, uh, susceptibilities, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, you know, there will be a time when, when you know, the, those people will have all sort of reached whatever weight they're going to reach. Uh, there will be a time when our environment is such that all those people who will be affected by it will be affected by it. I think the analogy for some people that might work for them is, is uh, asthma where there are those whose asthma is exacerbated by air pollution and air quality. Uh, but there will be a point, despite the fact that there will be people who don't struggle, uh, where everybody who's going to struggle as a consequence of the environment and their genetics will be struggling. Like, we're probably pretty close, to be honest, although uh, when we look at the rates of gain across certainly North America, uh, it's still going up. Uh, but I, I, I mean, there will be a limit. It's not as if everybody's going to end up, you know, struggling with this issue. But certainly after millions of years of evolution and extremes of dietary insecurity, when suddenly there is uh, available calories everywhere and we've created a food culture that, you know, uses food to celebrate even the smallest event, there's going to be problems. And, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing right now. To put obesity into context, how much more likely are we to suffer from chronic disease and die sooner because we are overweight? So it, it really varies by the degree of excess weight. Uh, but even at the highest levels, there will be people who don't run into trouble. So risks are not guarantees. And so definitely there are people where the higher their weights, the higher their risks of developing different conditions, things like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and sleep apnea. Uh, we know that many of the most common human cancers seem to have tight associations with weight, um, different forms of heart disease, dyslipidemia. I mean, the list is long. But again, there will be people who, who don't face those problems despite their weight, just like, again, every other chronic disease. You can have people with untreated high blood pressure who never have any issues with heart attacks or strokes, the odds are much higher that they will. But again, risks are not guarantees. You wrote a book, Why Diets Fail and How to Make Yours Work. And now some people demonize the word diet because it's seen as a short term measure. Whereas if we want to bring about substantive change over the long term, I've heard you say that it has to be a lifestyle change, something that people are willing to do for the rest of their days. Yeah. So whatever a person does in order to affect change to their weight, if they stop doing that thing, their weight will revert likely back to where it was before. Um, some people talk about biological set points. There's also sort of social determinant of health uh, set points where if you've got a particular lifestyle and your friends and you do certain things and your household abilities around food and food prep and how often you go out and travel and what your work requirements are, your medical conditions, your medications, all of those things sort of stay fairly constant despite a person's efforts at, at changing their diets. Uh, so if those changes stop, all those constants remain, people go back to old patterns and their old weights tend to return with them. Uh, so certainly whatever a person does, if they're not prepared to do it long term, which in my mind means it should not involve any real suffering because People don't suffer in perpetuity around something as seminally pleasurable as food. If you're not confident, oh, I can keep doing this forever, probably what your outcome will be is just temporary.
You also wrote The Diet Fix. Uh, How do we cope with cravings? Because especially when we're trying to eat healthily, and I say that with uh, the fact that uh, in mind we have Halloween coming up in a few weeks time and then after that is the holiday season. So it's going to be a minefield for people to deal with cravings, especially when they're trying to eat healthily and possibly even lose weight. Sure. So I think two, two things. So the first is trying to prevent them in the first place. And so prevention is always more useful uh, in pretty much every aspect of medical care and medicine. Uh, With respect to prevention, what a person would be doing is trying to craft a pattern of eating that leaves them not hungry. So cravings, I think, are just a reflection of the impact of our hunger hormones on our desires. Again, we have brains forged over millions of years of extreme dietary insecurity. We don't crave green leafy salads when we're hungry. We don't crave green leafy salads when our hormones are saying eat. We crave the stuff that we know has more calories. Uh, And so Reducing hunger by whatever pattern of eating does that for an individual is important. Many people, um, you know, will argue about how often, how many times a day should they eat? Should they fast, et cetera? But at the end of the day, there will be different patterns that suit different people for various reasons. One of the main constants, though, in prevention is ensuring that there's protein distributed throughout your day from all your meals and snacks. Another thing that can, of course, affect cravings would be medications. So uh, the medications that people are talking about in the media constantly these days uh, come from a category of drug called GLP-1 analogs. That refers to uh, uh, it's a mimic of a hormone that our intestines produce when there's food in our stomachs. And there's a receptor for that hormone in the appetite control center of the brain. And when it binds to that receptor, we have decreased cravings. So uh, for many people, medications are extremely useful. Then the follow-up is, of course, we're going to have cravings. Of course, we're going to choose to eat Halloween candy, me included. That's real life. I think people who try to live lives free from indulgences around food are likely to be in that temporary category where they're dieting for now and not for good. And so as far as dealing with uh, indulgence at the time, there's two simple questions that a person can ask of themselves. The first is, is it worth it? Maybe it is on Halloween. Maybe it's not today. Um, and the follow-up question is, what's the smallest amount that I need to be happily satisfied? And I, I think that that approach to dealing with indulgence likely for many people will reduce the frequency of times that they choose to indulge as well as the quantity when they do indulge, but allow them to do so thoughtfully on their own terms. Uh, but the answer to those questions, is it worth it? And how much do I need to be happily satisfied will be influenced by our body's sort of own internal hunger milieu. And that's where prevention can be beneficial. I've heard you speak on the subject of milk before. Now, I gave up drinking milk as a teenager simply because I didn't like the taste of milk. But I'm interested to hear about your thoughts on milk consumption in adults in particular as regards its nutritional benefit as a source of calcium, because we're told it helps to offset osteoporosis. But I am really interested to hear your thoughts on uh, the the milk industry. Uh, Is is the marketing of milk, is that essentially an example of a style over a scientifically proven substance? Well, so I I do think milk is promoted far beyond its medical benefits. Uh, Certainly, um, if people enjoy milk, they should consume milk. Again, in the smallest quantity, they need to be happily satisfied. I don't think it's a, a... you know, a demon beverage. And I don't think it's an angel beverage. I think it's a liquid source of calories, a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, 
a little bit of calcium, but I'm not aware of there being good studies that would suggest it's crucial for any aspect of health. Uh, when it comes to weight management specifically, of course, that's what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I, liquid calories for me, they don't sate, they don't fill people the same way. And so, you know, if you've got, you know, 100 calories from uh, a glass of milk versus 100 calories from eggs, uh, the chances of the solid food giving you more satiety is much higher in my experience. Uh, again, I think that it is a lot of marketing. It feels right, you know, in, in terms of um, it, it sounds like it should be really important. Uh, but unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, truthfully, it'd be lovely to have magic beverages that made us healthier and prevented us from breaking bones and made us full and happy and healthy. But it, it's just not in, in my reading of the medical literature uh, magical. Ozempic and oral semaglutide are just two of dozens of anti-obesity drugs that have come online and uh, into the market in recent years. How difficult does the existence of drugs like these make your job as an obesity specialist uh, when much of your role is to try to educate people about uh, changing their eating habits and exercising habits and oh, owning uh, I, the responsibility for doing so? I would push back on that. It makes my job far easier. So at the end of the day, you know, the the... We think of obesity like we think of any other chronic medical condition that has a lifestyle lever. Take high blood pressure, for instance. With high blood pressure, we know absolutely there are lifestyle levers to help reduce blood pressure. People can go on low sodium diets. People can focus on their exercise, on sleep. Uh, they can try to lose some weight. There's a lot of things a person could do to help try to manage their blood pressure, treat their blood pressure through lifestyle. But we don't require people to audition for blood pressure medications. We don't say, oh, we're not going to give you blood pressure medications to reduce your risk of uh, complications as a consequence of your blood pressure. Instead, we discuss the fact that, yes, there's lifestyle levers, and here are those levers. We say, here are some medications that you could try, and here might be the side effects and risks of these drugs. And then we leave it up to patients to decide. I'm a medical doctor. And so my job is to provide people with all of the information they need to make their own decisions. When it comes to medications, I meet three groups of people. I meet people who say to me, just as I would with high blood pressure, uh, oh, there's a medication that will help me manage this. I would like to take that medication and give it a try. I meet people who say, I would never want to be on meds. And I see this with blood pressure too. There are people walking around with much higher blood pressures than their doctors are comfortable with who refuse to take medication. They don't want to. They're allowed. And then I meet a lot of people in a middle camp um, with respect to weight management who say, listen, let me see how I do on my own first. And then if I'm still struggling, I'm going to add in the medication. And that's really what we tend to see in our practice. But I will tell you that if there were, you know, truly effective, durable, reproducible, long-term dietary changes that people could uh, make uniformly without suffering and live with forevermore, well, we wouldn't be chatting. Those drugs wouldn't exist. Um, there wouldn't be God knows how many umpteen billion uh, journal articles about obesity and what to do about it. So medications are an add-on. And I know I'm rambling. I don't generally like to go on these long, long rants for answers. But if you think of a treatment pyramid and a hierarchy, the base of that pyramid is always the lifestyle changes a person's capable and able to make. But it's such an incredible privilege that the amount of privilege required to 
intentionally change behavior in perpetuity in the name of health, you know, it's dramatic from a time, a health, uh, a mental health, uh, pain, a job responsibility. There's so much to change that this idea that if we just tried hard enough, we'd get there. I think it's a flawed one. And uh, and again, I'm thrilled that we have these medications that are incredibly helpful for a large percentage of people where it's not as if those people didn't try before. It's not as if they didn't have willpower. It's not as if they haven't been on a, you know, a dozen different diets over the years. It's that they're swimming against the current of their body's hunger hormones. And if we have medications that can take away the current, all of a sudden their desire to swim it overcomes that sort of challenge that they had been facing beforehand. So it makes my job far, far, far easier. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked you that question because I actually didn't expect that answer because obviously you're dealing with a variety of different patient types. Uh, some will need drugs and some will, won't need drugs. So it's it's interesting to hear your, your, your thoughts on that. Talking about drugs, I watched a very interesting discussion that you led a few years ago about rebranding exercise. You say why exercise is the world's best drug, not just a weight loss drug. Can you talk to us about this? Yeah, so, you know, as far as... Um, helping to sort of prevent medical problems as well as to ameliorate or treat existing problems, exercise is quite remarkable. You know, it really is remarkable from, you know, a huge swath of medical conditions that people can improve through exercise. The challenge, though, is that we have been fed a bill uh, of goods as a society that the purpose of exercise, its primary role and its primary benefit is weight management. And unfortunately, it's not. So the calories burnt through exercise are not nearly enough to be fair. Um, and that's putting aside the fact that many people, when they're exercising regularly, will eat more. Some because they're hungrier because of their exercise, many because they feel like they deserve it because they've been exercising or they're allowed to because they're exercising and others because they've been taught that, you know, some glass of, you know, electrolytes and sugar is really important for them to have or uh, milk too has now been part of many people's approaches to exercise. And so we tend to eat back the calories we burn. The calories we burn are not dramatic. And when we look at studies of different populations, it would appear that as we ramp up our exercise levels, our body sort of unconsciously changes our caloric burn. And so there's really only so much the exercise will do, and it's minimal. Uh, you know, I usually tell people that, and it, it's not born out of a true scientific study, but 80% of a person's modifiable weight is modifiable by way of food and maybe 20% by fitness. But again, if we go back to what I was saying about privilege, you know, exercise and having the time, the health, the injury-free status to be able to exercise, you know, as much as the papers would say you need to to lose weight. Uh, I don't know whoever's listening, if they've ever read those papers, the papers say to lose weight, you've got to exercise 300 minutes a week of moderate to high intensity exercise. Now, I've done that. I do that semi-regularly. That's a lot. I've got a lot of privilege to be able to do that. Um, I would encourage anybody who believes that, uh, you know, exercise is the ticket and people just aren't trying hard enough there to see what they can do about getting 300 minutes a week for even just a month or two in a row. It's not likely. And so I wish that we rebranded exercise in the context of its 
uh, improvement for a, a myriad of chronic non-communicable diseases aside from obesity. And actually, it's it's really its most important role, I think, in the human experience is in the preservation of functional independence. You know, as we get older, uh, exercise is what will keep us in our own homes, wiping our own parts and not needing help from other people. And uh, that's unbelievably valuable. There's nothing more valuable than that. You might, people might not realize that when they're younger, uh, but as you get older, you know, your independence, your health, your ability to care for yourself, that is huge. And exercise really shines in that regard. The other huge problem we've had in the selling of exercise is this idea that it needs to be large blocks and huge amounts when really, you know, some is good, more is better, everything counts. We, we, we really, we've oversold it for weight management and we've oversold it in a way that makes it seem daunting and unachievable uh, because small amounts matter too. A few weeks back, I had the pleasure of talking to Professor Robert Lustig, who's been very, very vocal down through the years about the lethality of glucose, high fructose corn syrup and ultra processed foods in the, the Western diet. Um, he was also at pains to say that governments the world over were backing down in the face of corporate giants like McDonald's and Coca-Cola. Uh, what are your views on this? So I do think governments have failed society for sure regarding sort of helping with regulations to make the food environment a safer place to, to be. There's no question about that. Uh, whether that's, you know, it's, the question then becomes, well, what should they be doing? And uh, one of the easiest targets that I think is difficult to argue with is uh, doing things around the marketing of food to children, especially. Uh, children aren't able to discern the difference between truth and advertising. Studies have shown that over and over again. I've got three savvy kids, but, you know, putting them against you know, the, the, the food giants of the world, the madmen of the, of the food industry with, you know, now the madmen, you know, that show was set in the fifties. Now they've got, you know, neuro, neuro MRIs and uh, eye tracking and it's so much more sophisticated. And we are so much more uh, online now that I think that that has been a huge failure. Uh, with respect to sugar, definitely I think we have too much of it, especially in liquid form. We could do more in that regard with, the use of taxation and some countries are doing that. So, so that I think is great. Uh, one of the biggest, I think, logical fallacies around government involvement in things like sugar tax is that, you know, that one thing alone is not going to treat or cure obesity. And that's true. You know, so single sandbags don't stop floods and we've got a huge flood right now. There's lots that could be done. And another area, at least here in Canada, where we are really deficient is having national food programs for children in schools. We, we don't have one. Uh, and uh, ensuring that kids can have nutritious, healthy meals at schools is a, a huge step that could be made. Uh, ensuring that the education system actually teaches children not about nutrition and some food pyramid, but how do they cook? You know, you know, could you graduate from school and know how to cook 10 uh, meals from, you know, inexpensive, fresh, whole ingredients that are nutritious and healthful? But, yeah, I, I think that we do have a huge problem from a, a government perspective. We also have a huge problem from, uh, again, the social norms around foods perspective. Uh, but my hope is, quite honestly, going back to things like medications, I'm not I, I will I expect medication will provide us a, a, a huge help far sooner than governments will. 
And, uh, you know, the, the medications that exist now, plus the ones that will be coming online over the course of the next decade or two, will be those like the blood pressure pills, where you go see your doctor, you've got high blood pressure, they give you a medication, it lowers your blood pressure, there's no other instructions other than take this medication, side effects are minimal, and the outcomes are terrific. And I think we will get there uh, long before we get to a place where the government creates a regulated, healthy food environment. In that milieu, though, what role does education and personal education and responsibility play as far as getting the right information about the right nutrition is concerned? You know, I really do wonder about the value of education in affecting a population level change. You know, I I, I don't see it. So my job, as you pointed out earlier, 20 years I've been doing this, um, is to teach these sorts of things. Uh, but at the same time, the people I'm teaching, uh, again, they are an interested population with a great deal of privilege. And uh, I don't think that population level change on the basis of an education campaign is possible. Again, I think if it were possible, we'd have seen it already. It's not as if there's big secrets here. And uh, and so I'm all for education. We absolutely should be providing thoughtful education to kids, to adults, to healthcare professionals around nutrition and also especially around weight management. Obesity has not been a topic taught in, in medical school and residency particularly well. And so there's a huge role for it. But will it be the solution by itself? Absolutely not. Uh, again, no single sandbag stops the flood. I think we need to fill that sandbag, too. I just think anybody suggesting that there is going to be some sort of campaign that by itself can educate the world thinner. Um, I just don't see it. You said earlier you weren't for suffering when it came to diets. Uh, does that include things like intermittent fasting and calorie restriction and paleo and various ketogenic diets? So it would be for those who find those to be suffering, right? So I've met plenty of people who are on diets that I would never go on personally, but who are very happy doing theirs. So I think intermittent fasting is a great uh, example. Carnivore is another example. Um, you know, these are not diets that I personally would undertake, but these are diets that we've had patients doing in my office. And so again, the, the question that we want to ask our patients is, you know, do you like your life enough to keep living this way? My job as a doctor too would be then to make sure that metabolically from a blood uh, testing perspective that this diet is not causing any problems. And I can think of, we've got just one actually intermittent fasting carnivore in our program. Um, and he's been working, you know, I see him periodically, but it's been five, six, seven years. His cholesterol levels are better than mine. Um, it surprises me to be honest. It does, but that's not my job to, to sort of assume something will happen in a negative way. Instead, it's to do blood tests, make sure he's happy, make sure he's on proper supplements because for a diet like that, he absolutely needs some dietary supplements because there'll be some nutrients he simply can't get from a carnivore diet. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not my job to tell people what life to live. It's my job to make sure that if it is impacting their health in a negative way, that we either discuss that and that's the end of the, the whole thing. They're comfortable either continuing or stopping or we treat the problem. But yeah, I, I think different strokes for different folks. There are successes from the world's you know, most divergent diets. And again, one person's perfect diet is another person's worst diet. 
I'm glad I asked you on, Dr. Friedhoff, because up until this discussion, I was very black and white about the whole obesity subject because I thought it it was really very much, it came down to personal responsibility, education and making the right choices at the personal level. But it's much, much more nuanced than that. And I suppose you are uh, the evidence of that because you are on the front line of, of that obesity uh, epidemic and have been, as you say, for the last two decades and uh, different strokes work for different folks. And sometimes that involves uh, medications. Oh, for sure. And actually, I think the medications will do a huge job over the next few decades, not just in helping people with weight management, but in helping to shift sort of opinions and attitudes that um, may not be actually true about weight management. So again, the average person who struggles with weight enough to seek help, they've tried and they've tried and they've tried. And I would argue for many of them, if there was a single thing they could change in their lives, that would be the thing. So this is the thing that's the most important to them to change. And they've tried and they can't. To me, that's not a failure of the individual. We haven't had an epidemic loss of willpower the world over. We just haven't. And, you know, the food supply, yes, it's changed and yes, it's worse. But again, I, I think if desire and education were sufficient to drive population level change, we would not be here. There will be individuals. And again, I, I made a career out of it. There'll be individuals who with lifestyle change make a big impact on their on their weight, on their health, on their quality of lives. Um, but but I, I really like, you know, so to take a personal example from my own life, and I've I've talked about this before, maybe you've come across, it, I'm not sure. In 2020, I was exercising. I've got a home gym. We were, you know, not allowed to go out and we were down in the basement. And um, I noticed I had an arrhythmia. Uh, I had an irregular heartbeat. It felt uncomfortable. didn't hurt. I still exercised, but it was there. And it kept happening for a few days. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I called some friends of mine. I'm a doctor. I called my cardiology doctor friends. And I said, this is what's going on. What should I do? And so they said, you know, the usual stuff. They said, listen, life's stressful right now. There are some lifestyle things you could do to help. You can cut out ca uh, caffeine. You can cut out alcohol, focus on your sleep, keep up with your exercise. And I did those things to a T perfectly. Um, after a couple months, I guess I was pleased that cutting out alcohol and caffeine didn't help because I, I like alcohol and caffeine. So I was able to bring them back. But Unfortunately, the arrhythmia was actually getting worse and worse. In December, I ended up getting emergently admitted to our heart institute, our hospital here. Um, I needed to stay there for three days because my arrhythmia had gotten such that it was not conducive to living, uh, which is is important. Um, and certainly I'd cut out exercise. I think, you know, I said this started in August. By October, I couldn't exercise as a consequence. By December, I could barely, you know, walk 200 meters without losing my breath. It was bad. So anyhow, I got admitted to the hospital. I got put on medications. I got sent home. Medications helped, but they didn't help a ton. They helped, um, but they were not good enough. And so the cardiologist and I, we discussed surgery. And so I had uh, what's called a cardiac ablation. And uh, so they put a catheter in and they zap parts of your heart so that the parts that are beating improperly stop conducting electricity and you're supposed to go back to normal. Unfortunately, I did not go back to normal. And so I ended up having a second ablation. The second ablation helped actually a bit more. And currently I'm still on medication. I still have the arrhythmia. Um, I'm not gonna go back for any other surgeries right now. I bring this all up for a reason. 
I didn't choose to have an arrhythmia. I didn't want to have an arrhythmia. I did all of the lifestyle things perfectly that for many people would be enough to control their arrhythmia. I got medicated. Medication plus lifestyle, because I cut out alcohol and caffeine on the meds too, just to see if that would be good enough. It wasn't. I had surgery. That wasn't enough. I'm back on meds. The hierarchy for weight management is the same. You start with lifestyle. And if lifestyle is sufficient to drive change so that a person's weight is no longer affecting their health or their quality of life, perfect. If it's not good enough, you add meds. And it's adding meds to a person's best efforts. It's not replacing your best efforts. It's, it's just that everybody's bests are different. There is a huge degree of privilege in our efforts. So you add medication. If medication plus our best efforts aren't enough, we actually do have very effective surgeries for obesity. So you add surgery. And then there are people who, despite those three levels, need to be put back on medication after surgery to help keep this under control, just like me with my heart arrhythmia. There's no difference. And I think that people will learn to to sort of understand that treatment hierarchy applies to weight management, just like it does to everything else. And that like everything else, every other chronic non-communicable disease, it should be blame-free. Um, it should be judgment-free. There shouldn't be moralizing around this because first of all, we shouldn't do that to anybody. Life is complicated. But second of all, it's totally unreasonable with a condition that is so, so influenced by genes and hormones that we can't change directly and a food environment that's broken and a regulatory system that's broken and a world that's confused. And so I'm sorry for the rant, uh, but uh, but that's sort of where I think we should be going with our attitudes about the treatment of this condition. And I think we're going to get there because the drugs finally are so useful. And the ones coming down the pike are even more useful. And once people see that, oh, you know, with my desire plus medication, I can get where I want to go. It wasn't a lack of desire. It was a challenge of my body that I could not overcome through willpower, just like I couldn't overcome mine. Well, I certainly have been chastened and have a different appreciation of the complexity of the obesity problem. And I appreciate your personal insight there and your personal story about your heart issues. Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, thank you so much for giving me of your time today. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate you sparing some of your time to give me some of your insights and your advice on the obesity epidemic as we see it today. My pleasure. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're enjoying listening, please like, subscribe, share and do leave the podcast a positive review. It really does help us reach more people just like you. Until next time, stay happy. Mm-hmm.